Hello, welcome back. You're listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Matt Barlow, Cameo Daly, and me, Maithili Meher. It's made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association and is supported by the Australian Anthropological Society. As always, we've invited a guest to talk about their work, about the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to teach us all for the 21st century. This time, our guest is Professor Jessica Catalino from the University of California, Los Angeles. Her research explores economy, nature, indigeneity, and settler colonialism in the United States. Her first book was High Stakes, Florida Seminole Gaming and Sovereignty, which explored the political stakes of casinos and tribal sovereignty. And her next book captures the cultural, economic and political dimensions of water in the Everglades. In this episode, she'll talk to us about the ways in which indigeneity and the settler state are constantly co-produced in ways that have resonance not only for specific struggles for tribal sovereignty and recognition, but for all of us who live under settler states. As she puts it in the conversation, the issues that face a lot of Indigenous nations are really core to the question of the social sciences and the public more generally. How do you balance collective wealth with individual wealth? What's the relationship between government and economy? What does it mean to live on land with others? Is it possible to share governance? And if so, what does that look like? So she talks about what it means that the Seminole tribe own the Hard Rock Cafe, how money has a way of mistakenly making us think that we know what's going on, as if everyone relates to it in the same way. The ways in which water materialises sovereignty because it ties us to each other. And much, much more. So I hope you're as excited about this episode as we are. Jess, can you tell us a little bit about how you came into anthropology? Um, but also maybe reflect on some of the experiences um, that you've had in the academy that are sort of most nourishing for you, things that kind of make you stay on in, in, this, uh, in this world that we work and live in. In some ways, I suppose the things that got me here and the things that keep me here share a theme around um, points of unexpected connection and disconnection. So I, I grew up on a farm. In, uh, on a, in a low-income family um, on a farm in northern Wisconsin in the upper Midwest of the U.S. And I went off to college at Cornell University on the East Coast with all uh, people who were a lot different than uh, where I grew up. And um, the painful realization that some of my new friends, and so this is an 18-year-old, and my um, home people were were not necessarily going to cross paths in life, um, and nor would they necessarily enjoy it if they did. Um, that made me want to think about both how um, the world sustains such a difference and how people move through it. So I took an anthropology class, and it gave me some tools to do that. You know, less individualizing than psychology, um, more everyday than sociology, um, and more empirical than the humanities classes I was taking. So I teach a big intro class to like 350 students. And um, one of the things that I always um, emphasize there is that the kind of magic of anthropology is the ability to connect the everyday to really big things, to really big questions um, that are fundamental about our world. And that is um, that appreciation for how people in their everyday lives do the big things, ask the big things and answer the big things um, has kept me in. It's an intellectual interest, but it's also a, a kind of form, I guess, of respectful engagement and relationality with other people. And that is that human side of what we do in the academy um, is really uh, the the kind of that human the humanity of it all is what keeps me in despite all the craziness of, of academic life. One of the things that uh, obviously links um, 
your work to uh, the fans that you uh, have interviewing you today, myself and Cameo, is a, is a common interest in kind of settler indigenous relations. And uh, so one of the things that I guess surprises me um, periodically, especially when I'm teaching, that probably shouldn't is the, is the low level of kind of political and legal literacy most non-indigenous people seem to have in the terms of settler indigenous relations, even in places where there are very big and important agreements and treaties in place with the settler state. And sometimes it feels like the legal technicality of settler indigenous relations is almost designed like to form a barrier to understanding. As an academic, uh, what are the challenges of trying to make visible these technical, legal and economic conditions for students and others? Because you do it fantastically. So how, how do you make something this this these dry technicalities into something lively some of it comes from my own experience of um growing up a few miles from a reservation um from the bad river indian reservation in northern wisconsin during the height of the controversies and legal cases around spearfishing rights and tribal sovereignty what i came later to understand as tribal sovereignty i grew up in the midst of that but i didn't really think about the ways that that went to the foundations of my life and everyone's life in a place like the United States um, until later. And and reflecting upon that, um, I realized that it can be really easy, like in a law school, say, to have um, Indigenous law be treated as a niche thing. Or, you know, in the social sciences, um, people who work on um, settler colonialism and indigenous issues uh, be pushed to generalize because it's not broad enough or it's too specific. And that is linked to, the, I think, what you're talking about, Tim, the, um, the lack of understanding and the kind of obscuring of really pretty fundamental ideas and basic ideas by these big apparatuses, like sort of the kinds of law um, that you're talking about. And in my view, the issues that face a lot of indigenous nations are really core to, uh, you know, the, the questions of social science in particular, but of academics more generally and of the public more generally. How do you balance collective wealth with individual wealth? What's the relationship between um, government and economy? Um, what does it mean to live on land with others? Um, is it possible to share governance? And if so, what does that look like? These aren't kind of obscure questions that only specialists have interest in. Um, these are like real dilemmas of broad importance that Indigenous people live every day and do really interesting and sometimes, um, you know, highly innovative things with. Um, that should make this of broad interest. Um, and the challenge is to figure out how to channel that interest in ways that support indigenous sovereignty and nation building. And um, so I, I agree that sometimes it seems um, obscure to people. And the fact that in the US, most Americans don't think of this as a settler colonial society still amazes me on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but that also is part of the responsibility I feel, um, especially as a white person, to um, continue to think this through and do this work um, and to broaden the attention to settler colonialism and the politics of indigeneity. And sometimes it's just, you know, you got to pick topics that, that engage people. Casino gaming, right? The Florida Everglades. These are things that um, it's not coincidental that they peak public interest because um, and it's not coincidental that they are thus sites for uh, innovations and engagements around indigenous sovereignty. And so some of it is also that being sort of fortunate to be able to work with places and themes um, that go to the heart of these issues. But also, you know, people are interested in gambling and in water in the Everglades. And that's a beautiful thing. And that, that probably brings us nicely to a, a topic we did want to touch on, which is about, I guess, your position as a as a non-Indigenous person, often studying Indigenous worlds. I, I encounter this question a lot, and it tends to come actually from non-Indigenous people, like why do you study with uh, Indigenous interlocutors? And it, it seems to come from an understanding like, oh, well, the best position for me as a non-Indigenous person is just kind of to leave, you know, actually also almost to be ignorant about 
uh, First Nations, Indigenous uh, worlds. That's the more respectful position. And I guess I feel like you you don't take that position. So I, I, I wonder if you want to say a little bit more about, um, yeah, what drives you to do this kind of work? Um, indigenous erasure is one, is lethal, is um, pervasive. And to walk away, um, I mean, you know, anthropology has grappled for decades with these questions around the relationship of colonialism to knowledge production and anthropology, especially with relation to indigenous communities. And to walk away from those questions is to contribute to erasure and to contribute to, um, or to abdicate responsibility. Um, now, that doesn't mean that, you know, my work as a settler white person is somehow righteous or anything. I don't mean, I don't mean to claim that at all. It's more just to not engage, just to participate in marginalizing the power of both settler colonialism on the one hand and indigenous politics and life um, on the other. And so you know, I, it's true that the transition from the, and we'll talk about this perhaps later, my f- earlier work to my more recent work um, has led me, or in it, I have really wanted to foreground um, what it means to think about indigeneity in the context that people live their lives, which is in diverse places with diverse people. So we're, whereas the first book was about Seminole casinos, um, it was also really about American public culture and expectations about money and indigeneity. And so in the second book, um, for reasons I can talk about later if you want, um, I set myself a challenge of actually setting an area, a kind of ecological area, um, and f- trying to think about if settler colonialism is so pervasive, then we should see it in places that aren't necessarily um framed in terms of indigenous people all the time. And so want, so the second book is like, is there's a lot of different communities in the book, which is part of why it's hard to finish. Um, and that book is really trying to grapple with this in a more rigorous methodological way than I did in the first project. So you have, uh, you, you've been referring, of course, to your, your first book out with Duke in 2008, uh, High Stakes which looks at the establishment of casinos on Seminole land, uh, reservation land in Florida in the US, and really exploring the intersections between sovereignty and economic activity. And this this kind of idea of the ways in which um, the social and economic, in as much as we would ever think of them as separate, are in fact completely enmeshed with one another, which is which is where they become really lively, right? It's where people's interests really... Mm-hmm. Um, gets channeled in. Uh, one of the one of the kind of concepts in that book uh, and that you sort of develop more in a in another journal article is um, talking about the double bind of sovereignty, which um, draws and and uh, intersects with with people like Beth Povinelli's work and other uh, other scholars who write um, in in this space of recognition and around issues to do with sovereignty. I wonder if you can explain the double bind to our listeners a little bit. So in the U.S., um, tribal casino gaming is a government governmental function. Um, the casinos are owned by Indigenous sovereign nations, and it is that sovereignty as recognized, well, as exercised and asserted, and then as recognized by U.S. law, that um, allows in various ways for um, reservation-based and other tribally-based casinos to to prosper. So in most contexts, um, if a a polity um, generates more revenue, so casinos bring money into tribal coffers and to, through a governmental process, and then they're budgeted through a governmental process. These are government monies, not private monies. In most um, contexts, if a polity gets more revenue, um, this is understood to strengthen their sovereignty because they can exercise their sovereignty more. It's also seen as a kind of marker of sovereignty that a polity has money, right, as opposed to one that's deeply indebted, for example. So you would expect then that when indigenous sovereigns get more money and use it for governmental functions like clinics and schools and all the things, um, that this would be be widely understood as reinforcing their sovereignty. 
What often happens instead is that this exposes them to new scrutiny of their sovereignty. It exposes them to their sovereignty being questioned and undermined in courts of law and in the courts of public opinion, as it were, I mean, in public culture. And that is a double bind because, um, you know, if you, it, it should be, right, more money, more sovereignty, but it's kind of the opposite. It's more money exposes you to undermining sovereignty. Um, and that is a real dilemma that, um, that indigenous nations face who have had success with casino gaming. And what that really gets to is a structure of expectation in American public culture around the, a kind of cultural set of expectations about the relationship between indigeneity and economy. One of our favorite journal articles of all time, I would say, cameo in mine, is the 2011 uh article in current anthropology one hamburger at a time um sidebar you have a great skill with punny journal article titles <laughs> that, that probably needs its own podcast uh you know conversation but we'll get you know that's actually that's for another time but in that in that article it discusses Seminole's uh acquisition of the iconic company uh hard rock and in that article you discuss the separation between different forms of identity, Seminole people and Seminole, the company. And you go on to explore the idea of indigenous or first nations wealth as being kind of perpetually emergent rather than inherent. Can you describe for us a little, the idea, you know, whether you think that these kind of prominent acquisitions have done anything to shift perceptions of indigenous or first nations wealth and Seminole people over time? So confession, I was sitting at my desk one morning sort of with my cup of coffee, loading the news. I'm in Chicago at the time, and the news headlines are, you know, Seminole Tribe buys Hard Rock International. Now, I was trying to finish up a book on that was about Seminole Gaming and Sovereignty. I almost fell off my chair. I didn't see this coming. I had no inkling this was underway. So what to do about that? Um, of course, I picked up the phone immediately and my phone began to go crazy. So I talked to people. Well, it was interesting. It turned out that also most Seminole tribal citizens didn't know that this was coming. Um, this was a deal negotiated confidentiality in confidentiality, which is typical of these kinds of really, um, you know, big time acquisitions. And it really got me thinking um, about you know, what, how is this going to play out in a community where there's a strong expectation of information flow and sort of rigorous democratic accountability? Um, and the Seminole Tribe had just bought Hard Rock International for $965 million, right? The, by far the biggest acquisition of a private company by, uh, by an Indigenous nation anywhere. Um, I do think that some perceptions have shifted. Wherever I go to a big city around the world, if I get to travel, um, I and if I see a hard rock, I always go in. And somewhere, and I encourage everyone to do this, somewhere in the in the hard rock, there should be a little plaque, a picture. Um, sometimes it has like a picture of the signing of the deal when the Seminole tribe signed um, the deal to buy hard rock. And it explains that hard rock is actually owned by the Seminole tribe of Florida. And I always go over there and then I like find the host. Usually someone comes and wanders over and asks if I, you know, can I help you? Be seated. And um, I always just say, I don't, I tend not to spend the money, which I probably should, but I, and so I tend to say like, you know, I come, I came in here because this is a seminal owned business and that is important to me. And, you know, usually they're like, okay, <laughs> because I don't think most of their customers have any idea about that. But it's just important to me to kind of mark that. And it's also really interesting to kind of go around the world and be like, wow, here's a piece of Seminole, you know, of Florida, of the Everglades um, in Sydney or in all kinds of places. And um, so, yeah, I think that um, the acquisition of Hard Rock really caused people to think about what's the relationship between um, a government and economy and how does that emerge and how has that worked out in real time and that's what that article thank you for p noticing that article by the way it's one that you know um, maybe doesn't kind of get 
as much light of day. Um, and it's one where I really forced myself to think about the structure of the corporation in relationship to the structure of the nation and of sovereignty. And I do think that there are some shifts um, as you know, in places like California, where gaming has really transformed, I'm, I'm in California now in Los Angeles, where um, tribal gaming has really transformed the relative economic power of indigenous people relative to their neighbors and others here, settlers. Um, but what it hasn't changed is, is the scrutiny and is the kind of suspicion um, that a lot of native governments face um, in, in whatever they do. I remember someone said to me, you know, when my, when I was young, this was someone a little around my age, actually a little older, um, who said when I was young, um, we used to get picked on, on, this was Seminole person. I used to get picked on in the playground because I was Seminole and poor. My kids get picked on, on the, on the playground because they're Seminole and rich. You know, the only thing that's changed is the rich, the poor, but the being picked on because you're Seminole stays the same. So some things have changed and it has undoubtedly increased the power to exercise sovereignty in all kinds of ways. And, um, you know, you can think about uh, environment as one place. You can think about other things. Um, and that power um, gets exercised locally and regionally in ways that sometimes like our, our broader social theories don't really account for. And sometimes you have to really see that power transforming in real time in, in small places um, where we all live. And so that's kind of what, you know, that, that led me into thinking about environment partly as a place where this, there has been a change. I'm probably going to misquote you here, but in another article, you have this great line of saying, you know, anytime an indigenous nation stops looking needy, it risks, uh, it's so, you know, it risks its, its sovereignty or, or the, the, the recognition that it gets to, as being indigenous from others. Um, has that, uh, is is the acquisition of Hard Rock an example of that? I don't think that the acquisition of Hard Rock has particularly played out that way. Um, partly because Hard Rock is actually um, taxed and regulated like any other business. Um, it's a wholly owned corporation owned by the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Um, and so I don't know that it's done that. Um, but you see threads in things like even court opinions, judicial opinions, where there is this kind of faint threat that um, that tribes may no longer, one of them may even use the word need sovereignty um, as they gain wealth. And one thing you certainly see now is whether it's um, in business or just in any kind of exercise of sovereignty, you see people who live near and around any reservations who are not Native themselves often um, accusing tribes of exercising their sovereignty only for the sake of money, only for gain, right? um, which is a new an, maybe not entirely new, but uh, a kind of transformation that in discourse that's available along with the kind of idea of indigenous wealth. Um, and so now sovereignty seems like a kind of tool to gain money rather than um, a foundation on which economic development can be established and, um, and you know, a, a, a reason for existing in this world. There's certainly some really strong resonances there with, with the Australian kind of case where similar kinds of accusations are levelled at Indigenous people who live in proximity uh, to, say, mining operations um, and derive royalties from those kinds of operations. And, and then um, there are all these uh, questions raised about, you know, what is the, what is the purpose of sovereignty uh, in, in terms of generating wealth and, um, and questions. And I think one of the other resonances uh, between Australia and, and some of the case studies we can think of in Australia and Seminole is um, this real kind of settler colonial desire to know about the, the kind of, you know, the throes of the financial arrangements, mm -hmm. how much money are people really getting, this kind of suspicious um, 
this kind of suspicion that's really pervasive in in that kind of in that world. Um, and, and, and I think because of that, one of the things that really stuck with me, and this is something that's been consistent in the writing that you've done around, around uh, hard rock and around the casinos, is, is, a, is a resistance to, um, to, to quantifying the, the financial amounts, the dividends that Seminole um, are entitled to under various deals or uh, the distribution of these dividends. Um, I imagine this is something that you get asked about a lot, um, but I, I wonder how I wonder how important it has been um, to you and and to your work as as you know perhaps a methodological question or a political mm-hmm. positioning um, to 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 refuse that gaze or that voyeurism around um, around money. Yeah. Um, it's true that whenever something comes up about casinos, um, especially. I mean, it can be in an academic audience. It can be in a kind of public environment. One of the first questions I get is, so how much money does each tribal citizen get from this? Um, and refusing to answer it is um, is to try to flip it around and ask, what is the structure of that curiosity? Um, where does this inquiry come from? Um, I certainly don't ask random people on the street how much money they make. Um, and it would con- be considered quite rude to do so, I would think. Um, thinking about that money, right? How much money does someone get um, is a distraction from, I think, uh, well, in a couple ways. One is, it's a distraction from how casino revenues and other sorts of income for um, Native nations are used for things like government functions, right? And this really incredible set of um, innovations around things like universal health care or lifelong educational benefits or things like that that have a lot of lessons to teach uh in society, especially a place like the United States, where we don't have universal health care and where you know education is incredibly expensive and indebting and whatnot, and so not focusing so much on that question of what an individual gets um, takes the conversation away in in ways that I think are telling um, from the more um, I'm not going to say more important, but uh, but sites where lessons are really to be learned about the relationship between money and community and caring for each other and the role of the state. Um, It's also interesting because asking about that money kind of assumes we know what it means to get money um, distributed by governments. Um, And one of the things that, you know, I became interested in about the redistribution of casino revenues to Seminole citizens on a per capita basis is that turns out redistribution of wealth in this way means different things in different communities. And, um, and so money has this way of making us think we know what's going on, right? There's, and that's, we're like, at least in the U S there's such a kind of dominant economism to the way all kinds of things get explained in the world. And so people are really quick to turn to, you know, well, it's greed or it's money or it's people doing things for money. And we know what money is and we know what money does. And, you know, for um, a long tradition of economic anthropology has suggested to us that actually the question of what money is and what money does is, um, is highly variable and in, in important ways. So it's both a distraction, but it, it kind of reflects the economism of the world that we live in. We should uh, move on to talk about the book that you're working on, uh, which uh, I feel like Cameo and I have, you know, had a kind of, um, we've got the secret demo, <laughs> arrived, you know, arrived on a CDR in the mail, and now we've, we've had the chance to like hear the, hear the, new, the new tracks before they're fully dropped. But um, you have this book that you're working on that is uh, that 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 we anticipate will come out in, in sometime soon, um, and in that book, uh, one of the quotes, one of the lines you have is is that the Seminole tribe uh, keeps sovereignty moving, and wa- water is one way, one you know, one way that uh, that 
that they keep sovereignty moving. This kind of feels like a bit of a bridge between the, the previous work, which we've just been discussing, and the, the, the work, I guess, that you've been devoting more time on in the last few years. So after more than a decade of this work focused <laughs> on casinos and seminal business, you've moved on to studying water, especially um, water in the Florida Everglades. Perhaps can you describe this shift for us um, that took you from from uh, from slots to uh, aquifers? Yeah, so way back when I was working on the first project, um, when I was doing my dissertation um, research, I was interested in um, you know, the ways that the Seminole Tribal Council was choosing to allocate casino revenues. And one thing that I was very struck by, well, first of all, I was just struck by being in South Florida and the Everglades. It's a place where you're just the the water, the swamps um, really kind of press on you. And I grew up in a very different kind of place, but very close to a different kind of land there. And so I was trying to figure out what it meant to be in this kind of space. But then I noticed that the Seminole Tribe had a really active, at the time it was called the Water Resource Management Department. And this is now two decades ago. So I began, I was like, oh, maybe I'll do, you know, look at how casinos have shaped water management. And um, sure enough, it turned out to be completely fascinating. Um, it went into the dissertation. I took it out for the book because I knew by then I was going to do um, related work for the second book. And, um, and a couple things really stuck with me. One was um, that water materializes sovereignty um, partly because it was through knowledge of this ecosystem and of water in the swamps that Seminoles were able to, um, to maintain their sovereignty and build their nation against the forces of U.S. military aggression and also of economic expansion in um, South Florida. But one of the things that really interested me about the water is when I was asking people about it, um, and everyone agreed water, so, you know, absolutely vital, crucial to life in the Everglades, of course. Um, both employees and citizens of the Seminole Tribe said to me to understand our water, you have to go north of the reservation. You have to go to the farms, the sugarcane um, farms, the citrus groves, um, the trout fishing areas, um, where because that water comes onto the reservation. Water moves, right? It moves across political boundaries, across private property lines. It moves and it puts people into relation to each other, whether they want to be or not. And that struck me as, um, so I, methodologically, I followed that out, right? I said, okay, I'm going to you know, take this literally. I'm going to talk to the people who live to the north of the reservation. The water's flowing north to south. And um, in doing so, I realized that that work of tracing water ties, of, um, of thematizing how water ties people to one another as well as to itself, um, was, was something I wanted to really explore um, as a site of politics, yes, um, but also as a site of um, interdependencies and, you know, and obligations um, that sometimes go unrealized. And so following those out became a methodological challenge, but also an analytical one for me. So on to water I went, but it didn't mean having to learn all kinds of new stuff. I mean, I did not, I was not trained as an environmental anthropologist, um, but, but it's been a really, you know, a really uh, important experience in helping me to continue to think regionally, to continue to think about the complexities of overlapping sovereignties and interdependent communities, peoples, and nations. Um, so in some ways, it continues some of the unresolved work of the first book, which, or the book, since the second one's out yet, I can't really call the other one the first, um, of the book around um, sovereignty and sovereignty and interdependency. Um, but in some ways, it, it, it tries to finish that work or at least advance that work, but also really takes on questions of um, how to, how to do, how to think about ties that people have to one another and to the land at, you know, this time of ecological reckoning. I mean, Everglades, the Everglades are like them. It's the most expensive wetlands restoration project in the world. And this is a giant, huge, expensive, much observed, politically important project. And um, that puts a whole lot of 
rural people in the crosshairs and trying to understand what life is like in the crosshairs of that kind of ecological reckoning um, is part of the project. And in so doing, thinking about rural America at a time of political, you know, really tumult in the United States has also been um, both a challenging part of this book project and part of why it's taking me a long time, um, but also one that in some ways loops back to my own origins, my childhood, and some of the um, dilemmas around agriculture and things that I thought about as a kid growing up at a farm. I think something that you've touched on there is the the kind of ubiquitousness of water, but at the same time, it's kind of scarcity in a particular way. Um, but um, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting um, is is this proposition that you you start the uh, book to be or book in waiting, or <laughs> um, is this um, is this uh, this move that you do, which is to follow the thing, you know, to sort of um, imagine a hypothetical bucket's worth of water. Um, but but you also describe this as a hydrological fantasy. Um, I wonder if you can sort of talk us through this and uh, a little bit and why why this would be a fantasy. So yeah, the, the, um, the opening of the book, as you said, Cameo starts with, I was trying to figure out a device for... Um, for explaining the complexity of the ecosystem and of the hydrology of the ecosystem. And so I thought, well, I know, why don't I um, imagine I'm dumped a bucket of water in my front lawn in the house I was renting in the agricultural town of Clewiston, known as America's sweetest town because it is the headquarters of the U.S. Sugar Corporation and um, the place where more sugar cane is um, harvested and raw sugar produced than anywhere else in the United States that the region is. And so I'm in Clewiston. I'm imagining dumping my um, bucket of water. And I thought, I know, I'll ask the water managers um, where that water goes. And then I can follow that water. It'll show the kind of complexity of the ecosystem. And it'll it'll be an, a device for explaining kind of where I am and how water moves. So I went to all kinds of people. And one after one, everybody sort of would start and then stop because it just got too complex too fast. Um, there, it turns out, you know, there are so many jurisdictions, there are so many uh, private property owners, government agencies, individuals, animals, plants, all kinds of things that um, in unpredictable, but not entirely unpatterned ways, um, govern water's movement. And that process and the indeterminacy of it um, really brought home to me the the social and political challenges of ecological restoration um, and the importance of really understanding um, the ways that water connects people. Because without that, uh, I mean, it's no, it's no, it's no surprise that Everglades restoration is not particularly successful. And part of the reason is because the social dimensions of it have never really been at the forefront. Um, and so understanding like the, the work of moving water around and, and disconnecting water people from each other or connecting them through water is, is the work that people do every day. And to not understand that is, is both to kind of push aside, um, people, but is also to um, fail to actually understand the ecosystem adequately. And that, that, that the idea that you could understand a complex ecosystem without really understanding the people and the decisions they make, um, whether consciously or not on a day-to-day -day basis, um, is how kind of water management long has been um, produced in places like the U.S. And so following the bucket of water just led me to a kind of question mark, you know, like I, I can't tell you where the, it would depend on the season. It would depend on a million different things. What do we do with that as analysts? Um, because I think that indeterminacy is really built into a lot of the politics, environmental politics of the day. And um, we have to somehow live with that. And I think it requires a kind of um, ethnographic and political methodology um, that makes, tries to draw, tries to show those connections and reckon with them, the connections that water draws. 
so yeah in the in the book you use this concept of water ties um as both a kind of analytical lens but i guess my impression from reading the book was it's also a kind of normative claim that we have water ties that is like you chart all these kind of seen and unseen relations that we have to water um the water that comes out of our tap but also the water that goes into all kinds of other things our food and uh, uh, ecosystems that we might enjoy as recreationists or whatever. So you chart these unseen and seen relationships that we also produce with water. So, you know, I, I claim water uh, maybe as a, as a kind of form of ownership or belonging. Uh, for example, you know, people make claims on the Everglades uh, in order to kind of um, stake a, a place there. But you also argue in the book that this kind of isn't enough. It's not enough uh, as an analytical strategy for us to kind of just reveal ties uh, that people have uh, consciously or unconsciously the water. We need to kind of take up obligations uh, to water. We need to care for waters. So um, let me kind of ask the naive question or double barrel question. Can you tell us a little bit more about this concept of water ties and what happens if we don't care for water ties? It's a, it's not a concept I went into the book with. It's really one that I came out of it with. Um, water ties for me are, yeah, it's an analytical um, concept. It's, um, does have normative dimensions around obligation. Um, it has dimensions of just empirical observation, um, like what are they and the work of tracking them out. And it also water ties, I, I, kind of landing on this idea of them as a political methodology, um, a political methodology in the sense that um, tracing them allow, they offers insights into politics, but also that for, it's a call to water managers um, and people who care about the environment um, to, to care politically about water ties that's like so it's a methodology for an analyst perhaps like me an ethnographer but i'm also kind of calling for it as a um, method uh, that uh, people endeavoring to restore ecosystems for example um, should undertake because without understanding those water ties um, those efforts uh, go awry really fast and that gets to your question of how what happens if we don't care for water ties um, you know at some level one could say well that's how we got into the problems that we have today, you know, of, um, around water. Uh, obviously, um, not caring for the water, harming the water harms all kinds of things um, because water is, you know, is in the web of life in so many ways. So not caring for the water um, harms other beings and ultimately harms people. But also, I think, and this is, that that's more obvious, right? And I think that's important. And that's what environmentalists have shown now for decades. But there's another thing that happens when we don't care for water ties. Um, if we don't pay attention to them, um, direct them with some kind of political purpose that isn't intrinsic to a water tie, but comes from a commitment, right? Some kind of political and ethical commitment. If we don't kind of um, both trace and also nourish water ties, um, then water will become just one more way that patterns of inequality get perpetuated in a society. Um, if it's true that water ties go to the fabric of social life and how people make claims on one another and on place, um, then water is doing something um, socially. Water is kind of, you know, participating in the organization of our world. And if we don't attend to that and we kind of let that go, it's not that it's it's going naturally in some hydrological like um, nature kind of way. It's that then water is going to be, you know, uh, channeled by and structuring of inequalities that, you know, surround us and that and water will become party to perpetuating or deepening those inequalities. That's why water ties are so important to me. Um, in addition to, of course, the environmental reasons, but also that if we don't attend to those water ties, then um, we do an injustice to people, we perpetuate inequalities, and we make water an unwitting participant in the deepening of those inequalities. So something that I think comes across really strongly in, in your book is this um, watery kind of, uh, this, this sense of water being uh, sort of fairly ubiquitous. Um, 
it's everywhere. Um, I think I think for people who like myself who haven't been to the Florida Everglades, we have very watery perceptions of what that must be like. Um, not just not just mm-hmm. in the, on the ground necessarily, but as a sort of atmosphere as well. A sort of we envisage a sort of um, a humid climate, you know, yeah. a, a wet atmosphere as well. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, it's fairly universal that humans have experiences of water um, and sometimes in great abundance, though, of course, acknowledging, as you say, that there are great inequities in the way that humans across the world are able to access water and, mm-hmm. and the safe access that different communities have to it. Um, but for a lot of us, um, we, can, we can turn on a tap and there it is. Um, it's it's a fundamental part of of almost every minute of every day. Um, but we're also told, and we know that it's becoming an increasingly precious resource. So, I mean, I think it's really interesting when we think about resources in this way. This this relationship between such familiarity, such constant presence in our life, and at the same time, this threat, this scarcity that's sort of looming over us as um, across so many different parts of the world, um, and particularly, you know, somewhere in Australia, which is sort of infamous for, for long drought cycles and, and these sorts of issues. Um, how do we? How do you think we kind of marry up these two somewhat competing experiences or perceptions of water? So water, yeah, it's. I mean, right? It's in our bodies. It makes most of who we are. Um, it's all around us. It's. It's sometimes abundant, sometimes lethal, sometimes absent. That can also be lethal, can be nourishing. I think our relations with water um, and relationality with water, kind of like I was saying about water ties and Tim and your question about that, um, showing relation to water is not an inherent good because sometimes relations are exploitative and sometimes relations are nourishing and lead to flourishing. And so, um, so we have to ask, okay, so water's everywhere, but water's also a site of struggle. It's a, um, and yeah. And what do we do about that? Well, I think one thing is to not get captured by, um, what Andrea Ballestero calls like water exceptionalism. It's really fun to think with water, but I kind of made a challenge for myself when I was working on this book to not use water metaphors and to kind of avoid flows. And this is, you know, because they're, they are enticing and water is so good to think with and, you know, amazing artists and poets and writers. It's not coincidental that water has such a life in the arts and everywhere. Um, and there's a lot of wordplay around water and a lot of the writing around that water works with that. Um, so, you know, I, I really appreciate Ballesteros' call to not see sort of water exceptionalism and to not, to also think about the ways that water is mundane and even boring, she says, right? What are the kinds of non, non-poetic um, ways that water is with us? Um, there's a, um, Jeremy Schmidt, a um, a uh, moral philosopher has a book called Water, and he talks about the idea of normal water, basically the kind of water that we come to know and measure in the world, That the kind of water that tells us that by a certain year we will have only X amount left or we will be in, you know, X percent of the world will be water starved. And Schmidt really draw, takes his readers through the, the history of the idea of water as scarce or as abundant. And that history turns out to be fascinating. It's tied to the history of anthropology and geology and the idea of water as a force and um, its role in settler colonialism. It's it's a complicated and interesting tale. But in the end, he really, um, reading that made me think, you know, I really have to watch it when I talk about water scarcity or water abundance, because that way of understanding um, what something is and that way of measuring it comes comes with a lot of baggage. It comes with cost-benefit analysis. It comes with the dominance of economics and environmental governance. And so at some level, I think, of course, we have to deal with the qualities and quantities of water um, in complex ways. But if once we start talking about water scarcity and water abundance, we're immediately enrolled in all kinds of ways of thinking um, that ethnography at least sits uncomfortably with. Um, and that tension is 
is something I really feel when I'm in like water management meetings and people are talking, you know, the modelers get up and they talk about water in a certain way. And so um, after Standing Rock and the, the activism that um, came out of uh, Standing Rock, I think it has really called attention to water and to the need to not only protect water, but sort of be in relation to water in insistent ways. Um, I, I feel like abundance and scarcity is leaves too many questions about politics and obligation. That tension between water's everywhere and water's really precious and we need to protect water. Um, I think the part of the way through that tension or to call it call attention to attention <laughs> is um, is to think about things like obligation, interdependency, and not just having more or less of something, but how that reshapes our relations to one another. To tack to uh, a quite different set of relations to one another, um, you are uh, an amazing scholar. Not only do you direct your uh, but do not not only direct direct your your intelligence towards academic uh, I guess research pursuits, but also um, service. I uh, was recently reading a book, um, Hannah Appel's uh, "The Licit Life of Capitalism," uh, which UCLA uh, <laughs> in the house. <laughs> She's my colleague. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> sidebar to uh, Hannah, if you ever want to come on the podcast, let us know. Um, but in that. Uh, in, in her acknowledgments, this stood out to me is that uh, uh, Hannah Appel uh, thanks you and specifically uh, mentions uh, you having taught her about anti-racist administrative labor. And I just love this this as a as a as a topic, um, thinking about the administrative labor of of academia is something we often don't kind of talk about, uh, but it's very important. So um, I don't know where you want to start on this. I know that you're also a member of recently of the uh, University of California Academic Senate, which I want to, I'm curious about. So maybe that's a, a place to start. What is what is an academic senate? And, and then we'll maybe talk about the importance of service to you. Sure. So yeah, redirect um, the, the academic senate. But there are links here and there are links indeed about... Um, living in community and in relations of mutual responsibility. Um, so the University of California has, as I think it's superpower, um, the fact that built into the very structure of the university and its charter is something called shared governance, where the faculty have a formal role in, as um, participating in the governance of the university. And um, that's still active. It's still part of the public mission of, of the public university here. Um, and it's something that if we don't use it, will wane, right? Because other things will take its place. And so at, um, at UCLA, where I'm on the faculty, um, the faculty actually have a fair bit of formal and informal um, governing authority. And so when thinking about, you know, what my place was in the university and how to connect my values to my everyday academic practice, I began to get involved in um, the Academic Senate. And so I'm currently vice chair slash chair elect of our Academic Senate, which represents uh, about 3,000 faculty, our 3,000 faculty, and um, and participates in faculty, in, in shared governance with the administration and the Board of Regents, which is over all of us. Um, it's, you know, this... <sighs> Service is in close relationship to governance, and something like an academic senate um, calls attention to that. You know, so, I mean, yes, service is giving to and, you know, contributing your labor and your time and your attention and your ideas to some to something that's shared with others. Um, but it's very, that's very closely tied to governance, right, and to um, trying to think about what participating in governance in a relatively... Um, non-exploitative way can look like. And I'm not saying the Academic Senate, which can be stodgy and bureaucratic and all that stuff is like some, you know, paragon of like rad governance or anything like that. Um, but I do think that um, abdicating responsibility for participating in governance um, is a mistake that it can be easy to make uh, um, as faculty, you know, we're in a world that's very like um, 
promote yourself, be, you know, protect yourself, do all the things that you're supposed to do for all the right reasons and then tell everybody about them. And, and I get that there are a lot of pressures um, that make that real for people. And I'm not, I'm not just dismissing that. I get um, some of the pressures there, but in anthropology, at least I feel like we, I don't know, we have to also think about community and we have to think about the ways that we want to be tied to one another um, in community. And so it's, yes, it's service, of course. Um, You know, I've gotten a lot from institutions and people and and, um, people have been, I grew up, like I said, in a low-income family. Like this path has been an unexpected one in many ways. And um, so I do have a kind of give back impulse, but that's not really at the base of why I do this. It's more about um, trying to enact the things I I think about all the time, about how are people obligated to one another and how is that tied to the political. Um, and that's something that I, I get to work on when I'm reading many committee reports, writing many reports, um, and sitting through lots of meetings. So that's the Senate. It puts me, it puts me on, you know, everything from like the campus honorary naming committee, what should we name our buildings after, and what should be the principles that guide that, to, you know, uh, IT stuff, to sustainability stuff. It's, 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 it's endless meetings. Um, but it is the actual work of, um, of governing in community. The questions I think are particularly uh, for women in the academy is the idea that service is an expectation um, that women engage in in a, in a particular way that uh, that I think is an expectation that's not placed on um, male colleagues in the same way. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on how, you know, younger women in the academy um, coming through navigate can also be a really heavy burden of expectation. It can. Um, we There was a study at UCLA just a couple of years ago that showed exactly what you would predict, that women, all women and men of color do vastly more service um, in, in the university. And uh, those patterns are pretty persistent. How do you deal with those? Well, um, one way is to try to link service to power. Um, so, you know, I while I'm going to spend a lot of this next three years um, on the Academic Senate, on the other hand, I'm going to be spending it in positions where I can actually do things. And so trying to think about what is the relationship between service and power, I think, is important because... Um, Otherwise, service just becomes a way of sucking people's labor and souls out of them. And to ha- the fact that that's patterned by gender and race is particularly pernicious in the academy. This has been really exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, the service expectations and burdens that um, women and men of color on the faculty at UCLA at least have um, taken on in the pandemic are hugely disproportionate. And... Um, on the one hand, you know, it's just hard. It's hard to know what to do because um, there's the learn to say no and like find your friends that you ask whenever someone asks you to do something and they'll tell you, say no. Um, but that also can have the effect of um, closing people off from one another in a kind of self-protecting, uh, what, like self-interested way. And, and so I think rather than just like say no and protect yourself, the question is um, choose what you say yes to and have the things you say yes to be things you care about um, and um, can actually imagine doing things in the world that matter to you. People don't always have that choice. And there are... Um, service just gets assigned to people. And I think we really have to work on that. One thing that is, I think, important is in tenure and promotion to actually count service in a meaningful way. Um, The fact that it's not really counted um, very much compared to other aspects of academic life, even though it's expected, um, means that these patterns of who does more service are going to have a direct effect, or an indirect effect at least, on tenure and promotion through universities, and that's a real problem. So I think, you know, there are are things we can do around um, 
the structure of the academy, but it's not like every academic department can solve um, the problems that are pervasive in society either. Right? I mean, these these patterns aren't only in the academy. I have this other project. Um, one of the other things I've been in the leadership. Uh, I've been in the leadership of the Center for the Study of Women, the sort of Gender Studies Research Center at UCLA. And one of the projects, it's a group project that I've been um, involved in there and kind of leading there with a bunch of students, is on gender and water day in everyday, uh, or gender and water in everyday American households, and um, especially in Los Angeles. And so we worked with a bunch of households. And, you know, it turns out that in LA, at least, um, it's absolutely clear that women are disproportionately responsible for how water is used and managed in households. Um, but only one of like the 36 households that we talked to about this thought that gender had anything to do with how water was used in their households. And there was a strong ideology of gender of gender equity. And, um, and every time we'd ask about something where once again, women who are doing most of the housework are using more of the water, we'd ask about those patterns and it would always be explained away by both men and women in households. Um, I'm just the pickier one. I, you know, I just don't mind this as my, all these things, but always the gender explanation was refused except in one household that actually was like well you know i'm a woman i do more of this stuff because that's just how it is um and so i think one of the hard things about things like unequal service burdens in the academy to loop this back around <laughs> is um is that um is the truism that we can perpetuate sexism and racism and all those things against our own intentions um and why would it be otherwise? Culture is powerful, right? These structures are powerful. Um, and so it's not like people are sitting around saying, like, let's purposefully um, put all the service on the women here or on the men of color here, right? Um, but that doesn't, and, and, and so people get really defensive when those patterns do pop up because it's always for some other reason. But why, why should we expect ourselves to be different than all other people, right? We, we, we are swimming in a world, um, and sometimes we swim in way, with the current, um, even if we don't intend to. So that's just to say that this is not something that people can solve by just like learning to say no. Um, it's a much deeper thing. And that burden, in fact, of learning to say no and the blaming of women and men of color for doing too much um, and bringing this upon themselves should stop. And we have to all step back and think about uh, putting in structures that will actually work against these inequities in the academy. This is probably like a parenthetical comment, but um, I feel like that's a feature of Quitlet <laughs> is like people's expectation, like that academia shouldn't have the injustices and inequalities of the rest of the world. And so because it does, I have to yes. leave it. Well, and um, we're anthropologists. We study the um, ineffable effects of patterns right in the world all the time but the sense that we may be inadvertently um, participating in and um, deepening those grooves of patterns um, is really hard for people to take on and I, I mean all I'm not saying I'm outside mm. of this right I'm always looking for a different explanation for my actions than um, you know than I, than ones I really don't want to see but yeah I think the kind of an expectation that the academy um, should be somehow outside of society is um isn't reasonable and um and there is a kind of um it, it prevents people from rolling up their sleeves and working on imperfect solutions that make us live better um and i think that you know flourishing back to back to water. When I was in Australia, seeing both of you and at the Anthropocene campus, Tim, that you helped organize at, um, in Melbourne, um, I remember we were having a session on water and we asked people to draw on giant post-its um, what water flourishing looked like. And this was a room full of social sciences. And only one of the people in the room put a person in their picture. Um, all the rest of the pictures were of non-human things. Um, and that's what flourishing for water looked like. And um, I'm looping this back around too, to the Academy, I promise. Um, <laughs> the, um, the question of how we flourish um, together uncomfortably 
is a hard one, and um, but it's a question that we're asking about our ecological futures. It's a question that we ask around the complexities of um, sovereignties, and it's a question that we should ask about our workplaces and our communities that we're in too. I'm not saying it's one that's easy to answer, but the imperfection of it and the the impossibility of a sort of pure place away from um, sources of harm, I think sometimes leads to um, actually the deepening of these inequities rather than the just kind of doing uh, the real roll up your sleeves efforts to try to, to do better. Uh, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you for uh, having me. It's such a pleasure. And anything that gives me an excuse to see the two of you and get to talk to you again um, is wonderful to be part of. So thank you. It was also important to Jessica to acknowledge the intellectual milieu to which she's indebted. So she wanted to give a specific shout out to people like Melanie Yazzie and Kucha Rizling Baldi's introduction to their special issue of Decolonisation, Indigeneity, Education and Society, uh, entitled Indigenous Peoples and the Politics of Water. Uh, also, Teresa Montoya's work on permeability. Courtney Lewis's book, Sovereign Entrepreneurs, Cherokee Small Business Owners and the Making of Economic Sovereignty. And Carla Scaramelli's book, How to Make a Wetland, Water and Moral Ecology in Turkey. So please do check them out in addition to Jessica's work. You've been listening to Conversations in Anthropology. This episode was produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people by Matt Barlow, Cameo Daly, Maithalima Hare, Timothy Neal, and myself, David Border-Giles. It was made in association with the American Anthropological Association and with the support of the Australian Anthropological Society. And if you have a chance, please don't forget to rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform. 